0: You are about to enter a new dimension of experience. You will venture to a place beyond imagination, where both space and time deform into grotesque realities. To a bizarre universe where fantasy and nightmare challenge your sanity. Here, only the strong survive. Not yelling Welcome to the show Uh Second Episode ever Um Hope you're All out there taking care of yourselves And each other Uh we're gonna talk Gonna share some thoughts about some things Gonna look at some news items Gonna maybe take some calls If there's anyone out there in radio land who wants to, uh, shoot the shit on politics, current events, or philosophy. Uh, the opening theme song provided by local Austin, Texas band, Hot Mom. Uh, the track is White off their EP, Blue, White, Pink All Over. You can find that on Spotify and Bandcamp. Ooh, man alive. How's it going out there, folks? Um, let's see. Let's get... Let's uh, let's dive right into it. Um, I recently uh, tried some Delta 8 gummies that I got from a good friend of mine. Um, and, uh, boy, was I surprised by their effects. Um, recently, here in Texas, if you're not aware, they passed uh, some... New law about hemp uh, that uh, gave hemp a very strict definition, or gave THC a very strict definition of the delta nine cannabinoid. Cannabinoid. Yeah, um, I don't know all the. I don't know all the fancy lingo, but here's 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 my understanding of it. There's this law about hemp. It defines THC is delta nine. So basically. Anything without that one particular cannabinoid can be considered hemp, uh, which opens up a, pr- a pretty big loophole um, for uh, other "quote unquote" hemp products. Hence, delta-8, which um, I've heard a lot of people talk about. That you know, it provides a similar, it can provide a similar like creative um, high or buzz without the more, like, um, like, drowsy side effects of smoking weed, um, and, you know, I was skeptical, uh, uh, but, um, you know, a, f- a trusted friend gave me some gummies, there's 500 milligram gummies, and, uh, I took two of them before I really realized how, what the recommended dosage is, which is actually about half of that, but nonetheless, um, you know, it was surprisingly effective, you know, I felt, I was very, my mind felt sharp, um, I was, you know, uh, ranting all over the house, and pacing, and, um, you know, generally feeling keyed in, you know, really keyed in mentally, uh, and, you know, uh, I was thinking about the legal loophole that allowed for this even to exist, Um, you know, it was a, it was basically a law written out of ignorance, as far as I can tell. Um, dudes who don't know jack shit about marijuana or hemp, writing laws, um, trying to restrict things and accidentally open up this loophole, uh, which they then later tried to close after it was discovered that it was a mistake to, uh, only define, um, THC so strictly, uh, I see a little sip of Miller Lite right there, um, what the old whistle, uh, so, thanks to this legal loophole, basically, more research has been able to be, to, to, uh, has been able to be done, basically, on weed, and cannabinoids, etc cetera. Um, and, you know, it. It's, it's a lot of the like CBD cannabinoid stuff can seem like a lot of like, um, you know, pseudoscience or like, you know, snake oil type nonsense. You know, I bought some $80 powder from the farmer's market that was supposed to be some CBG, you know, moon dust super brain power, and uh, I put it in my coffee, and I just uh, went right to sleep, but the thing is, the reason that, um, you know, there's that whole, uh, in terms of our knowledge about it is because these things are kept illegal, right, and if weed was not illegal, then I'm, then actual meaningful studies could be done about it and its effects, and we would have been able to learn about such things as Delta 8 way sooner. You know, just because the, you know, the whole thing <laughs> is made legal doesn't mean it would, the that our progress would just stop there. You know, that's not indicative of uh, our society whatsoever. You know, we're always looking uh, to make new creative innovations in any field, no matter what the, uh, you know, what is allowed, per se. But, um and, uh, it just got me thinking about, uh, laws against drugs in general, and how that barrier to knowledge really has detrimental effects on, um, our society. This, you know, if you're a progressively minded person, this is not exactly, like, news to you. Um, you know, that, uh, with uh, that the that the legal barrier uh, keeps us from uh, being informed basically and knowledge is power right and uh the uh traditional argument against drug legalization is that uh you know if it's legalized then you know it's going to be a free for all but um this is you know completely um antithetical to everything we know about the way human beings operate basically where the thing that is kept without just outside of our reach is that much more tantalizing right and um it and the lack of knowledge allows for people to be duped basically um it makes it easier for i think it makes it easier for people to fall into addiction when um you know the knowledge around certain substances is limited um and the uh uh streams of um you know the the access to these things are restricted only to uh you know black market channels Um, Where you're not going to have people, you know, concerned with uh, others, you know, best interest. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, as a result of this, um, you have a pretty big burden on um, public resources in terms of, uh, you know, drug addiction, um, uh, ignorance about drugs... Uh, more greatly facilitates drug addiction, which then can lead to more severe problems, you know, can lead to such things as homelessness. And then those, you know, homeless, those people out there who are just, you know, out in the world, uh, you know, when they OD or when they get arrested, you know, they just get put in jail or, you know, they call ambulances which the bill then has to be picked up by, you know, the taxpayer, basically. And that's a lot more of a strain on public resources than things like, uh, you know, like clean needle programs or like uh, basically basic harm reduction. Uh, Let's see, this week I have put some links on my blog to some articles I'm going to be referencing today as I talk, you can if you're listening right now, you can find a, easily find a link to that at kylewall.biz. It's right there on my homepage. You just click, well, I'm not yelling show notes, and uh, it'll take you to my Space Hay blog, where I've got some links. If you're listening to this on the podcast and uh, it's not there on the homepage, you can just go to my space hey, blogspacehaycom slash kylewall. You'd be able to find it there. But let's see here. We've got... um, Oregon's... This is an article on reasons to be cheerful. Oregon's new hard drugs policy is both radical and sane. So, um, I'm going to get it... I'm going to scroll through and read some excerpts from this in a second. But, um... The... The resistance to more progressive drug laws traditionally comes from people on the Republican side of the political spectrum. They have made it into a moral issue and less of a public health issue, um, right? Which is, you know. If anyone knows anything, you know, that's what the whole war on drugs was about in the first place, Um, uh, trying to create, it's not about, it's not about helping people, right? It's just about creating a diversion. It's creating a scapegoat, right? It's, 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 it's introducing a new label within society uh, by which we can be divided against each other and therefore distracted uh, from the people um, at the top who are just, uh, you know, using this system for their own uh, personal uh, financial gain. Uh, let's see here. Um, what's so frustrating, what, what can be definitely frustrating when advocating for more progressive drug laws, too, is, is that a wall of moralism where, uh, you know... The idea behind making bad things illegal, at least the story that we're fed, the idea behind making bad things illegal is to protect uh, the population, right, from things that can harm them. That's the story that – that's the fairy tale that we're told as children. That's what I was, you know, brought up with. That's what, you know, my parents believe and a lot of people's parents believe and a lot of people in this country. Not as many as you might think anymore. Um, I, but, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's tough to argue with those people, right? Because, uh, they just have a very cut and dry look at it and, and their faith has been basically put in something, you know, they have blind faith in the system and, uh, you know, their whole perception of reality is, is already a house of cards. So when you, you know, have something so, uh, core to your personal, like, ideology, or your personal philosophy that is also based on a lie, right, like, they're only, they're only given half, like, part of the story there, they're just told that the government is here to protect them, and that things that are bad are bad because they're bad, because we're trying to look out for you, because, you know, the government is your daddy, and your mommy, and here to, like, guide you through life in the most, you know, uh least harmful way possible with only your best interest at heart but this is a lie this is a lie as, as you grow up and you really start to um you know ask question these these assumptions that that you've been given you and uh, if you have any sense at all you can you can see that uh this is a well-constructed lie to keep us you know following along with our heads down and not asking questions um, and, well, and the other, th- the other thing that you'll come up against with is, uh, you know, how are we going to pay for these things, right? You're talking about progressive drug laws and, like, you know, some places are, you know, like having clean use rooms or clean needles or even places that, like, prescribe, uh, hard drugs in very specific doses and provide a clean space for them to... Uh, do these drugs so that it's literally about reducing the amount of their reducing the number of variables that can lead to an individual's harm in that situation and you know the the uh the lovely fiscal conservatives will uh bemoan the uh b- the tax burden that this will this this will add to um uh, you know joe Sixpack, and but this is also a lie um you know it's we've got the they just legalized a bunch of they just legalized a bunch of drugs in Oregon um they've had medically supervised drug use in Vancouver for quite some time now since 2003 at at least and let's see. You also have Switzerland, where they're focusing primarily on harm reduction, and uh, they've they have heroin prescriptions in Switzerland. And uh, you know, if you look at the numbers from any of those places, you'll see that not only does it save more lives, this approach, um, it also saves more money, because you know how much it costs. Uh, for a homeless person, or to you know have an ambulance take them to a hospital, you know that that you know that it's like a joke here in America the cost of an ambulance, right? And and people with jobs even avoid using ambulances because of how costly it is. And so you know my basic point here is if. If you if it's not about the people, you're not interested in saving lives. You say it's about the money, right? And and we have the numbers. It saves lives and money. And and you and if one is still opposed to that, then it's not possible for their motivation, uh, you know, to be altruism. You know, this is not a, this is not the altruistic choice. Um. And, uh, again, it's just, it's just another example of, you know, particularly here in America, the system that we have in place is not in place to protect or take care of any of us. It's meant specifically to keep us down, to keep us oppressed. You know, the war on drugs, even the guy, the the motherfucking guy that worked for Nixon, uh... God, I wish I had remembered to look this up before. Let's see. The dude, (laughs) the fucking guy that worked for Nixon, that was, like, one of the, like, key dudes in the war on drugs, admitted that it was all about villainizing hippies and uh, Mexicans. That's why they called it marijuana, to give it a scary Mexican name, right? And then all the hippies are on the dope, and so if people who smoke dope are bad right, intrinsically, you, you make that, you draw that line between drugs and evil, anyone who does drugs must be evil, right, and this is not about, clearly, we can see by the numbers, the war on drugs is failing, this is not about people anymore, okay, so, I don't, I'm sick of hearing all this bullshit about drugs, it's, it's about control, it's about control, and it's about distraction, and, uh, you know, it's You can't trust the institutions, basically, is the basic point, once again. Let's see here. Let's go to these articles. And let me look up some numbers here. All right, we're looking at, right now, I'm looking at Reasons to be Cheerful the article about Oregon's new policy. Let's see. This is from November 10th, 2020, by Eric Krebs. Uh, last week's U.S. election made winners of wide swaths of people, policies, and ideas. One of those winners was progressive drug policy, and not just for marijuana. Four states, New Jersey, Montana, Arizona, and North Dakota, voted by large margins to legalize marijuana. But the truly groundbreaking news came from Oregon, which decriminalized marijuana possession in 1973. Last week, voters there approved two unprecedented changes to American drug policy the legalization of the use of psychedelic mushrooms and the decriminalization of the possession of hard drugs like methamphetamine, LSD, oxycodone, and heroin. It's, let's see, it's important to note: legalization and decriminalization is not the same thing. My printer was out of ink, otherwise I would have been able to do a little more prep work here. And picked my little anecdotes that I wanted to highlight. Let's see, alright, we're talking about Vancouver now. Vancouver's medically supervised drug use. Oh, here we go. Mm-hmm. Oh wait, let's let's back up a little bit. Uh, Sanho Tree, director of the Institute of po- for Policy Studies Drug Policy Project, understands why some might be skeptical of policies like organs. Most of the solutions to our drug problems are counterintuitive in nature, he says, adding that punitive measures only inflict further harm on those struggling with adi- addiction, and that drug enforcement incentivizes illicit production. Quote, we don't know what the ultimate ideal drug policy should look like, says Tree, but pieces of that mosaic exist all over the world. There are lots of lessons to be learned. All right, and now we're going to get into some other things. But um, he says here most of our drug problems are counterintuitive in nature, right? And that their punitive measures only inflict further harm on those struggling with addiction— and that drug enforcement incentivizes illicit production. Here's the thing though. Um people talk about this as if that was not the point all along. Uh I'm really tired of of living in this world where we're pretending like these laws that we're just now discovering don't fucking work were not were not intended to be specifically disrupting in the ways in which they are. Uh, again, this is, this is about questioning your surroundings, questioning your assumptions, questioning the world as it has been presented to you. Uh, it's, um, it's really fucked up to look at a person struggling with addiction and only see someone who deserves that struggle. Um, that sort of thought process requires a certain lack of humanity that is saddening, you know? uh, Let's see here. We're looking at Vancouver where they have medically supervised drug use. Drug use is inseparable from the physical spaces it occurs in see cities around the world have taken steps to make those spaces safer King's College let me see I'm trying to find some actual numbers here let's see all right yeah in Vancouver in two thousand eleven a two thousand eleven study published in The Lancet found that within two years of insight's opening this is the uh insight uh it's a safe drug use facility uh Let's see, one of the best-known the, faci- yeah, Insight, founded in t- 2003 in Vancouver's downtown Eastside neighborhood. Uh, it's an area that once had HIV rates higher than anywhere in the world outside of sub-Saharan Africa. And it's the old, oldest legal safe injection site in North America. So in 2011, a study published, uh, within two years of Insight's opening, overdose deaths within a 500-meter radius decreased by 35%. In the 17 years since Insight was founded, out of 3.6 million visits, and despite 6,440 on-site overdoses, not a single person has died from an overdose there at the site. An evaluation of a similar SIS, that's a safe injection site, in Sydney, Australia, found that, found that that facility, over the course of a decade, had overseen 600,000 injections and zero deaths. Um, Alright, here we get into some critics stuff. Critics have argued that lowering the relative risk of injection might encourage drug use, known as the honeypot effect. But Sydney and Vancouver have found no evidence of this. Perhaps this is why. Researchers have found that SIS's safe injection sites don't lead to an increased loitering or crime and typically become accepted by their local community. You know, and this is one article, but if you, you know, you just go on Google and look up, um, you know, cities with progressive drug policies, and you see this uh, is consistent uh, across multiple sources. These are not biased results here. And truly, who... This is another thing that boggles my mind about uh, people that oppose progressive uh, drug policies, is they tend to think it's some sort of con job where like, you know, any article that's in favor of anything radical or anything that cha- challenges the status quo is somehow part of this elaborate scheme to get us all hooked on drugs. Which who 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 the fuck could possibly benefit from that? I, I you know, yeah you know, it it's it's difficult when things seem to be so obvious you know um, to me and yet you know just so not to so many other people uh, it 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 seems obvious to me that one would more greatly benefit from the system as it is in place now and would be more motivated to manipulate data and information in order to maintain the status quo Then, than to like why is it so nefarious to want to take care of people you know this this is another one of these um, you know like principles of uh, American society that, that just does not make sense to me if someone's out there trying to take care of other people, somehow they're actually the bad guy. You know, it's all for show, it's all for posturing, it's just, it's just for popularity. No one could possibly care about anyone else in such a way that they would make any sort of sacrifice or suspend any assumptions or biases or challenge their fucking... the way that they interact or perceive the world. That's not possible. You know, it's... You know, that's a classic thing too, right? Like when... When uh, Republicans, or when when one accuses another of something that they haven't actually done, right? The the accuser is actually showing their cards, and showing what they would do, and uh, that would be a fun show to do. I should take note of that. Of like the um, just rampant and repeated cases of of hypocrisy on, particularly on the Republican side of politics. Where um, I feel like time and again, you'll have, you know, people in the GOP accusing people in the Democratic Party of pulling a fast one or committing voter fraud, right, or any kind of bullshit thing. And then at some point down the line, it's discovered that the Republicans themselves were actually engaging in this behavior that they were accusing others of doing. Let's see here. Uh, Switzerland, heroin prescriptions, Um, yeah, they, uh, in 1994, Switzerland took a controversial step to address its heroin epidemic, more easily accessible heroin with a few conditions, that is, right, This, this is what, this is what, harm reduction laws and and progressive drug laws allow for us to do is to take care of each other right if if the drugs are legal then you can control the amount that a person can legally get and through that process inform them how much is too much you know in a world of ignorance it's a, it's a guessing game you know and hence overdoses right that's what happens a lot with relapse well, you know, people that relapse after a long time, the tolerance goes down. They go back to their usual dosage, do- usual usual dosage, and end up, you know, not you know, doesn't end up well for them. But uh, that's that's because of you know the shroud of ignorance surrounding drugs and drug um, usage, and drug dosage and the effects. Uh, let's see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's read this. Uh, At the time, the country was struggling against a rising tide of heroin overdoses and the highest rate of HIV-AIDS-AIDS in Europe. As part of the 1994 overhaul of its narcotics law, scientists and policymakers planned a pilot program of heroin-assisted treatment programs. Oh, pilot study, excuse me. Planned a pilot study of heroin-assisted treatment programs. Drug users were... Prescribed heroin for supervised use in combination with other drugs like methadone and therapy, for those who qualified, mostly heavy users for whom other addiction treatments had failed, the program offered a safer means of use, or reducing their use. Um, a safer means of using or reducing their use of the drug. The promising early results convinced lawmakers, and in 1998, the program was expanded via executive order. It wa- it proved wildly popular with the public. In 2008, a referendum to end it failed by 36 points. And it's no wonder one study found that after six months in a uh, heroin-assisted treatment program, daily heroin use by participants dropped from 81% percent To 6%. That is huge. That's a huge drop. As two decades and dozens of subsequent studies have shown, that wasn't an aberration. In 2012, a 2012 review concluded that... um, HAT programs dramatically reduced continued use of street heroin and led to greater participant retention, reductions in criminal activity, and reintegration into stable housing, employment, and drug-free social relationships. HAT programs in Switzerland also helped reduce HIV rates and overdoses. In 1992, 700 people per year... 700 people... Per year, died as a result of narcotics. By 2012, ten years later, overdoses had fallen to 214, and for the last decade have remained under 140 per year. That's overdose deaths. That, that's a huge drop. Um, again, when when these things are uh, re- when these things remain illegal. Then you know people, uh, users, and 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 uh, addicts who are struggling are that are that much e- more easily demonized by other people in society and are ostracized. Right? It's very interesting here that they note um, that the program's dramatically dramatically uh, led to. Let's see. It said and uh, the drug-free social relationships. That I think is actually a lot more meaningful than you might realize, as, you know, once you, uh, you know, if, you, if you're struggling with addiction, or if you have an addiction, and you feel ostracized from society, and that you can only socialize among so- certain circles, that greatly reduces your ability to, um, you know, better yourself, and um, again, it's, it seems pretty apparent to me that the, the, the pro-human choice is to do everything we can to educate ourselves and help each other to the greatest extent possible. And I just don't see that happening here. And, um, you know, I'd love to argue with someone about it because uh, it seems very apparent to me that, again, this is just another aspect of our society here in America that is anti-human. Uh. Let's see. I got Let's I got another article here. I want to pull up some other numbers. Do, 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 do. Let's go back to the blog. Mm, 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 Ending the War on Drugs by the Numbers. Let's see here. This is American Center for American Progress. This is an article from June 27th, 2018 by Betsy Pearl. <laughs> do, do, do. Yeah, this, this article talks about Nixon's war on drugs in 71 set into motion a tough-on-crime policy agenda that continues to produce disastrous results today. Uh, definitely agree with that. Uh, policymakers at all levels of government passed harsher sentencing laws and increased enforcement actions, especially for low-level drug offenses. Uh, yeah, I think it's pretty apparent that uh you know this like idea of enforcement through fear of punishment is not working um in fact it has i think it has the complete opposite effect on our society when the enforcement of morality is strictly through fear then it's actually like become a goal to reach a level of status where you can live outside of that fear so it's 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 like you know i don't, i don't i don't think i don't believe that crime is more heavily celebrated in any other modern society than in american culture you know like uh, uh, it's 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 so backwards you know the movies the tv shows right like we're obsessed like the sopranos right i love the sopranos right And, um, the reason you like The Sopranos is because it's cool to break the law. And why is it cool to break the law? It's cool to break the law because the laws are bullshit. And everyone deep down fucking knows that. You know? Let's see. The war on drugs. The war on drugs. Hmm. Yeah, the way that you know everything is written is just completely against totally anti-human it's not allowed for anyone and you know fucking lo- uh, didn't I haven't even gotten to the opioid op- opioid epidemic you know which is completely facilitated by um our system and uh you know is just a fantastic glowing example of man's pursuit of money and power and total disregard for anyone's health or well-being, or any uh, collateral damage um, in pursuit of that money and power. Let's see. Yeah, I, um, oh, here we go. Economic impact on the war on drugs. Since 1971, the war on drugs has cost the United States an estimated $1 trillion dollars. In 2015, the federal government spent an estimated 9.2 million every day on incarcerated people tra- charged with drug-related offenses. That's more than 3.3 billion dollars annually. Uh, I would say that that's not working. If you're spending that much and the, those numbers aren't going down, I don't think it's working, guys. But again, again, we, you know, people on the progressive side of politics, we like to we look at the, we're trying to show people the numbers right look it doesn't work we can see fucking objectively it doesn't work look how much money we're spending look how much drug use has not changed at all look at the places where it's legalized and how much how many lives are saved and how much money is saved but that's the dirty little secret once again this is not about people it's not about saving lives it's not even about saving money It's about dividing us against each other, I think, first and foremost. Impact of interventions, harm reduction. Let's see. Yeah, it's all here, guys. Um, Many jurisdictions are reducing uh, fatalities by expanding the availability of nalox. Naloxone, an opioid overdose reversal drug okay. Every month, first responders in New York City Save 180 lives by administering this Naloxone uh, As Massachusetts program A Massachusetts program reduced opioid-related death, deaths By 11% By distributing Naloxone to individuals At risk of overdose As well as to their families, friends, and service providers That is like a half-assed uh, attempt at harm reduction, but even that is still having, um, I think, a meaningful effect. Uh, syringe access programs pr- provide people, we know what syringe access programs are. Let's see. This results in significant reductions in the incidence of blood borne diseases. After implementing syringe access services, Washington State documented an 80% drop in new diagnosis of hepatitis B and hepatitis C. And in the District of Columbia, syringe access programs were credited with a 70% decrease in new HIV infections over two years, saving $44.3 million in lifetime health care costs. Nationally, researchers estimate that syringe access programs yield a return on investment of $7.58 for every dollar spent. That That is a pretty big, I think, pretty significant return on investment. Uh, let's see. Oh, here we go. Safe injection facilities. More than 60 international cities now operate supervised injection facilities. Uh, SIFs are safe. yes, we know what those are. no no with a successful Yeah, these facilities are proven successful in connecting individuals with treatment and social services as well as reducing overdose fatalities and bloodborne illnesses. Over the course of two years, a safe injection site in Vancouver, British Columbia. Was associated with a 35 percent reduction in overdose f- fatalities in its immediate vicinity. Uh, safe injection sites also increased connections to substance use services. So let's see, they saw a 30 in a year after establishing the facility. Vancouver saw a 30 percent increase in entry into treatment among safe inject- injection users compared to the year before the site opened. Again, this is another thirty percent increase into into in entry into treatment, right? So the legalization of drugs is actually having the reverse effect than what is expected. We're seeing people who are struggling, who are addicted, once they're no that once they no longer feel ostracized. When they feel cared for and are given access and they aren't judged, they are doing whatever they can to change, to seek help. And that's what it's all about, guys. If if, if we're not making it as easy as possible for people to help themselves, then what are we doing? We're helping them harm themselves. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah, there's a lot of good statistics on this uh, Center for American Progress article. Like I said, it's on my blog. You can find it on, right now on kylewall.biz. Or later, you can find it on blog.spacehey.com slash kylewall. It's I'm Not Yelling. Show notes number two. Yeah, I uh, I say that it's... Enough arguing about it. You know, the people that are opposed to progressive drug laws are people that are opposed to helping human beings. And there is nothing that we can do to convince them otherwise except show them through our actions what it means to really be a human being. What it means to really care about each other. And to turn away from divisiveness, from labels, from bullshit laws written to control populations and keep us ignorant and keep us pliable and and easy to manipulate and uh you know i'm done i'm personally i'm done wasting my breath talking to anyone about uh you know things of this nature and if you don't agree then you just don't agree and i'm just not going to waste my time with you you know i don't see anything to be gained from it Alright, it is 12.43 a.m. Central Time here in Austin, Texas. I'm sipping on a Miller High Life, and you're listening to I'm Not Yelling with Kyle Wall. Right now, being broadcast live on Entropy FM. Uh, this This and all episodes will be available as a podcast... Which you can find on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And uh, I just got an email that it's now on Google Podcasts. And I'm working on getting it on all those uh, lesser podcast platforms. We've got the big three right now. Uh, you can find links to all that stuff on anchor.fm slash I'm not yelling. I haven't yet added this show to my website, but it'll be up there very soon. Alright, let's, uh... Let's take a little break with some music right now. Enter the Cosmic portal. Oh, boy, oh boy. Thanks for joining me here tonight, folks. If uh, there is, in fact, anyone out there in radio Land. Um... You know, this show, I've been... This is a thing that I've kind of wanted to done... Or that I've been wanting to do for a long time... But, um, you know, I'm generally pretty reluctant to put any kind of spotlight on myself in any way whatsoever um but you know, and I'm still getting my bearings on this whole thing, you know i'm I'm flying solo tonight, uh, my wife Chelsea, was gracious enough to stay up late with me and do this with me last week to help me get past some of my jitters um but I'm flying solo right now, and it feels a little weird. Feels a little crazy flying with no safety net, just me and a microphone and the live internet, just coming straight off the out my straight out of my ass, straight out of my ass. Just all this yammering. You know, I hope that first segment made sense. I'm still trying to get my bearings as like, you know. Uh, in terms of extemporaneous monologuing. Um, but, uh, thank you for joining me, uh, on, on this experiment, you know, this experiment in thought, and, uh, uh, I hope that it is enjoyable and informative, and, uh, you know, just thank you. Um... I hope you're all taking care of yourselves and each other out there. I really do see that as, like, the highest nobility. You know, in, in topsy-turvy times, in this crazy modern world we live in, you know, it can be hard to know where one can do the most good. Um, but really, I believe that the most good is to be done within oneself and within one's own community. And, you know, it's easy to get distracted by the world and the news and, um, you know, the powers that be constantly berating us with this idea that we are the ones solely responsible for all the world's problems. You know, it couldn't be, you know, the top whatever corporations that are, you know, contributing the vast majority of all the pollution in the planet. No, it's a, it's it's my plastic straw that's making the problem. And, and, and those fucking things are so facile anyway when it's like, oh, reusable bags, plastic straws, compostable, paper. The thing is they're still making the fucking plastic stuff, though. If you don't stop making the plastic stuff, it doesn't make any difference what I use. You're still making more fucking trash. If you want to make any fucking actual progress here, you have to shut down those goddamn factories that are making the goddamn single-use plastics. As long as this factory's still cranking that shit out, it doesn't matter how many fucking, it doesn't matter how many goddamn aluminum straws I buy or how many fucking hemp tote bags I buy, right? Fucking HEB. Right? You have to pay for bags, right? You're not supposed to use reusable bags, but they still have bags there for you to pay for, which are made out of plastic. How much good can my one little canvas tote bag be doing when there's fucking hundreds of people coming through even just this one HEB by my house, and everyone's fucking buying bags? Who the fuck ever remembers to bring their goddamn bags? I almost never do. And I feel like shit every time. But you know what? Those fucking grocery bags are not going to save the world, okay? We have to look to the people actually causing the most harm and hold them accountable. We can't let them distract us from what they're doing. Don't let them put the blame on you. This this goes back to what I talked about last week in the abusive relationships. What do abusers do in relationships, right? They fucking, they fucking skirt responsibility, they obfuscate, right, you, you try and call them on their shit, and then they turn it around on you, that's fucking abusive relationship 101, and that's what happens here in this country every single day, every time you see a fucking bullshit commercial on TV, or you see some fucking ad or something anywhere where it's like, you know, your straws are killing the turtles, yeah, that's true, but (laughs) we gotta fucking stop making the straws, just stop making the straws. If you give that much of a shit about the fucking straws, you got to stop fucking making them. Oh, I'm not yelling, folks. Just very passionate. Just very passionate. Um, let's see here. I have some more little news articles to talk about. And, you know, I'm going to go ahead and open up the phone lines. I'm going to unmute the Google Voice right now. And I was going to talk a little bit about some current events, some stuff I saw that I found interesting, and then play a little more music, and then maybe take some calls if there's anyone out there interested in talking, but I'm just going to go ahead and open up the phone lines now, 512-522-4646. If you're out there in Radioland, Night Owls, you. you're you know, you're you're riled up about politics or life, or, or you want to share something, something uh, you know heartfelt, something, anything at all. Give us a call. I'm here live on Entropy FM. Do 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 do. Man, I have had "Seals Kissed by a Rose" stuck in my head for about a week now. Um, on the Wall Brothers Power Hour this week, we did a little little bit of a tribute to Seal. Played uh, Kiss by a Rose" and "Crazy" and uh, his version of "Fly Like an Eagle." Uh, dude's a dude's quite quite a singer. I forgot that Kiss by a Rose" got popular because it was in Batman Forever. That shit is hilarious, and that the music video is actually Batman Forever themed. Hell of a thing! Hell of a thing! All right, let's see here. Here's a here's an interesting thing I saw on Twitter. Um, it's the first link on my show notes, kylewall.biz or blog.spacea.com slash wall. This is a thread, a tweet thread, a thread of tweets from Alec Karakatsanis. Apologies to Alec. His Twitter handle is at Equality Alec. Thread, what is happening right now at the New York Times is important and dangerous. I've tried to document it thoroughly below. Thank you, Alec. We appreciate your work on this. Uh, this, before I really get into it, is a great example of how bullshit the Republican rhetoric of um, the liberal media is. Uh, because that's that's just a distraction tactic. You know, I grew up on L- Rush Limbaugh. I, I've heard... Him and Neil Bortz and all those dinglings, all ranting and raving about, you know, the liberal media's agenda to sissify America, yada, yada, yada. It's all bullshit, okay? It's all, it's fucking paper tiger. It's a distraction from the real shit that's going on because the media industrial complex is just as vested in division and outrage at. Uh, Justin is invested in those things as the fucking Republican shock jocks. Um, Alright, here we go from Alec, this tweet thread. Last week, New York Times published a major story that suggested falsely that police prevent... Murder and that one reason for increased murders during a global pandemic was civil rights criticism of police. Oh, boohoo, the cops are so sad. Oh, the cops are so sad because we don't like it when they shoot people for no reason and so they're not gonna do their job. I fucking hate, goddamn, fucking cops are some of the biggest fucking snowflakes in the world. You wanna talk about fucking snowflakes? Fucking cops are fucking snowflakes. The The ultimate definition of a snow, f- snowflake, in my opinion, is a person that actually ho- holds all the power but also wants to still be the victim. And, uh, you know, that's a paradigm you can apply to basically anyone that identifies as a Republican or conservative politically. Uh, the New York Times did not disclose that the reporter was a former CIA... Palater, I don't know what that is. Police slash D A paid. All right, he's he's abbreviating a little bit, so I'm lo- I'm I'm losing some nuance here. But basically, the New York Times failed to disclose that the author of the article, blaming increased murders during a global pandemic on civil rights criticism of police, was a bootlicker, uh, former cop, former C I A. Basically the most scummy piece of shit you could ever come across in the entire world. Um, next tweet here. I wrote a thread criticizing a few of the most obvious flaws in the article, including the failure to disclose the writer's uh, corporate and police conflicts of interest instead of engaging. The reporter just blocked me after the article. Let's see. And So we got a, a thread within a thread here. Um... Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let's move on here. Imagine letting a reporter write about these issues and not disclosing this. And then we got another tweet here. Um, let's look up. It says this references Pal, Palantir again. I'm going to look up what Palantir is. going to do a little live Googly. Googling. <laughs> Googling. What? <laughs> I gotta work on my enunciation. Enunciation. Mm. That's some sort of like a security firm or something. Let's see here. They perform deep search of all criminal, financial, medical, communication, and clandestine agency records on the target. Alright, so it's some fucking, you know, security, cyber, you know, security bullshit. Company, I don't know, American Software, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, clear conflict of interest. Let's go back to the tweet thread here. This New York Times reporter also worked as a cop after the CIA and is predominantly featured in this scandal. Right. How is the New York Times publishing him without disclosing this and his many other conflicts of interest on police and for profit police corporations? So this guy's compromised on all sides. Uh, he has no objectivity whatsoever. And The New York Times, one of the great enemies of, you know, the working man, uh, of average Joe, as the, uh, you know, uh, the conservative media uh, would have you believe, is, uh, you know, putting out puff pieces on the police, basically, you know, supporting the status quo. That, um, police should be allowed to, uh, conduct their, whatever,
1: you know, they should,
0: they should be able to act however they see fit and, uh, are above any accountability because they are, I don't know, fucking god warriors or something. Ah, fucking cops, man. A bunch of babies. Let's see. This tweet thread is from about two days ago, so... Uh, The New York Times doubled down. They ran another major article on the same increase in murder. This time, they quote, as an expert, the same CIA police guy. Again, they do not disclose the conflicts of interest as they parade him as an expert. Today, this is two days ago, New York Times article is much worse. The very first quote is a police chief blaming rising murder on bail reform. Excuse me. Uh, this is false and disproved. Let's see. Uh, oh, yeah, there's an, he links to an article which disproves that. Um, uh, police union and for-profit bail industry hackery. It's like climate denial, he compares it to. Let's see. Years of rigorous evidence and social science research show that reducing cash bail dramatically reduces crime for years to come. Again, this is another one of those things where the numbers support the opposite approach endorsed by people on the side of law enforcement, and yet that is completely ignored. Um, here's a recent example of bail reforms from, a very, from the very period New York Times discusses, without increase in even short-term crime— uh, yeah, he's got uh, links to something from uh, the Civil Rights Corps. Oh, um, well, let's see. Uh, the meaning of practice Okay. Uh, but the article by... Neil McFarquhar, which I guess is the article that quotes the bootlicker as an expert. Let's see, murder spiked in 2020. See, this is, another, this is also how you know that the New York Times is not on the, on the side of the people. Because I've got a big fucking thing here blocking my way of reading this article. If there's a company that is putting profits in front of the proliferation of information, then they are not on the side of the people. And I don't want to hear a goddamn thing about it. If you're not going to allow people access to information, if you're putting money above information, then you're part of the problem. Uh, that's just how it is. I don't make the rules. Um, let's see. The article by Neil McFarquhar gets worse. It cites a parade of police and paid police consultants to opine on the causes. all uh, point to more money for cops. This media practice has to stop police officials and people who get paid by police are not the only experts on policing. And it gets much worse. The article twice quotes pro-police sources for the opinion that an increase in crime is the result of police being less productive. First, all crime other than murder is down. Second, it's pure propaganda that police reduce crime. Again, the numbers speak for themselves. Uh, Also, the evidence-free euphemism of being less proactive is unreal. We're talking about the largest human caging force in modern history that handcuffs, kills, beats, cages, and separates families more than any society in modern history. Let's see, one last... Then, Neil McFarquhar goes off the rails. He repeats unnamed cops' false claim that bail reform in some places caused violent crime, but then rebuts it by saying violent crime increased everywhere. False. The same FBI stats and his own sub-headlines say violent crime is down. And uh, this is quite a lengthy thread here. Let me see. Let's, uh, let's see. Yeah, then New York Times lets Neil uh, Mr. McFarquhar suggests that reader, to readers that reform has caused a revolving jailhouse door that drives up violence. This vivid imagery is classic Willie Horton reporting. What benefit is served by telling people a revolving door is spewing criminals into the street? Uh, yeah, that's, I definitely agree with that. That's, sounds like pure fear-mongering. Um... Almost every single quote in the article is a cop or a paid cop consultant, and every single intelligible place where expert opinion is sought suggests a huge connection between police and violence prevention. This is a political, anti-science view repeated with no skepticism. Important institutions like New York Times must confront their pro-police biases, yada, 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 and then it's a call to hold uh, New York Times accountable, but again, uh, this is one of these situations where uh, it feels like a person is being very, like, naive when they're like, hey, New York Times, you need to check your shit, it's like, nah, man, like, most of these, like, large media, like, companies that own newspapers are owned by fucking, you know, capitalists who have a vested interest in, maintaining the status quo, and so they greenlight articles that benefit them specifically. We saw this just recently with Jeff Bezos and the Washington Post, where a number of articles after he bought the fucking paper, let me let me confirm that that is the, what he bought, Jeff Bezos, Washington Post. Yeah. Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post and basically immediately afterward... Like, four big articles came out about how billionaires are good for the world, etc., etc., etc. And you have media companies, the supposed liberal media, um, being complicit in pushing this new idea of the Amazon work city, which is like, uh, you know, the most absurd and blatant... Um, one of the most blatant um, uh, instances of history repeating itself. You know, we, we we went through this already. You know, that was laissez-faire capitalism way back during, you know, the start of the Industrial Revolution and whatnot. You know, we already know that work cities are a fucking con job. Basically just, uh, you know, constructed to um, allow, uh, you know, the the captains of industry to... Hold on to as much money as possible, right? You're paid with company money that you can only use in the company store, and then that money just goes right back into the pocket of the man up up top. And um, you know, I think if the if the liberal media were even a real thing, these quote unquote liberal news outlets would be making us aware of how stupid. An Amazon Work City would be. Um, and how harmful that would be to um people's uh you know, freedom and prosperity. Which isn't that isn't that what we're supposed to all be about here in America, folks? Freedom up and prosperity? No, actually we're not. And that's what we're learning. Uh let's see here. Let's go down the list on the next article in my show notes. Do, 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 do. Pastor applauds judges who blocked Tennessee governor's mask opt-out order. This is kind of a um, silver lining. little. This is like a nice thing that kind of, you know, made me feel good that, you know, not everyone's a fucking idiot in the world. Uh, let's see. This is Fox 17 WZTV. Ooh, excuse me. Uh, WZTV, Nashville. Uh, September 27th of this year, Jordan Whittington. Pastors applaud judges who blocked Tennessee governor's mask opt-out order. Pastors across Tennessee are applauding three federal judges who blocked Governor Bill Lee's executive order, which allows parents to opt their kids out of wearing mandated masks at school. Lee issued the order in August after a handful of Republican lawmakers demanded the governor call a special session so the GOP-dominated General Assembly could halt mask mandates in schools and other COVID-19 safety measures. Um, Again, this is just another blatant example of the Republican Party's anti-human agenda. Um, As of Monday, three federal judges have blocked Lee's mask opt-out order in Knox. Shelby, and Williamson counties. Some pastors have called Lee's coronavirus policies dishonest and dangerous. Quote, Now that parents cannot opt their children out of wearing masks, more children in those communities will be protected, especially the most vulnerable, said Rev. Dr. Lillian Lammers, associate pastor of First Congressional Church of Memphis. Quote, these rules, or these judges, Excuse me, these judges ruled based on facts, science, and the information provided to us by by medical professionals and experts and not on political messaging meant to divide us. See, Dr. Lillian she knows what's she knows what's up. A pastor in Nashville also celebrated the judges ruling saying if Jesus carried a cross, surely the least we can do as Christians is carry a mask. Let's see, we've got a full statement here, I'm not going to read that, but you can go and find follow that, uh, you can find that article on my blog. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, there you have it, folks. Um, these judges ruled based on facts, science, and the information provided to us by medical, prof- medical professionals and experts and not on political messaging meant to divide us could not agree with that more um, something ironic about the church and evolution in their whole history is that um, I don't have the research in front of me to back this up but um, feel free to do it yourself and I'll try to remember to uh, bring an article next week to to reference here but it's my understanding that one of th- that the church was the first place to um, sort of accept Darwin they saw his theory of evolution as further proof of God's plan, and uh somewhere down the line, you know some wires got crossed, something happened to where you know there was some something switched, something switched, you know, basically, anytime you see any like broad group of humans making any sort of like intelligent progress. There's always someone that swoops in to stop it because they see an opportunity to divide and profit from that division. Let's see. Next article. Oh yeah, here this is a, this is a good one uh, from Politico. This is a few days ago. On, uh, oh, this is yesterday or two days ago, twenty eighth. Meredith McCraw, mad dash. Trump's demand for a Texas audit caught Governor Abbott off guard. So first of all, don't know if you're aware that there was an audit of the election going on in Arizona. uh, Being facilitated by the cyber ninjas. Yeah, that's who you want to that's who you want to trust your election results with cyber a company that calls themselves cyber ninjas yeah that's uh that's not a red flag at all anyway they concluded their audit in Arizona recently and actually discovered that Trump lost even more even it was even more of a landslide in favor of Biden than previously discu- previously thought so completely backfired and now in a mad dash to you know um bring to himself any more any more attention that he possibly can. Trump apparently sent a letter to uh Texas Governor Greg Abbott that bastard demanding he pursue an audit of the 2020 election set off a this letter set off a mad dash in the governor's office as AIDS sought to figure out just how serious the former president was, according to two sources familiar with the situation. Which is, again, another fucking absurd thing to me. Former president, former president is asking for an audit of an election in a state that he won overwhelmingly, and they're scrambling to find out how serious the former president is. He's the former president. Who gives a good goddamn how serious he is about anything? Um, But, of course, I don't personally believe that he's really serious about anything. Um, As far as I can tell, he has no moral compass, no morality, and no plan other than to garner unto himself as much attention as fucking possible. And uh, he will do and say literally anything just to have attention. Uh, And, uh, you know, to assume that he has any grand scheme behind this call for audit in Texas is to give him far, far too much credit. Um, Let's see. In the letter, Trump called on Abbott to hold a forensic audit of the 2020 election and pass HB 16, a bill recently filed in the third special section of the Texas legislature which would allow for an Arizona-style audit of the presidential election. Let's see. Despite my big word in Texas, I hear Texans want an election audit. Trump wrote in a public letter addressed to Abbott on Thursday. Why? Why the fuck? What? What? What is to be gained by a Texas audit? I don't understand. And uh, fucking Abbott just lay rolls right over and lays down and says, "Yeah, we're gonna do it. We're gonna do it for former President Trump." Um, because I'm a spineless political hack who will do anything to, uh, advance my own political career at the detriment of a whole state's worth of people. Fuck them. Fuck them all. You know, fucking Abbott is a real fucking bastard. If you weren't aware, uh he like was paralyzed right and like sued whoever and won and then as soon as he was governor got rid of all those laws that allowed him to sue that guy in the first place so that's you know i think that's all you really need to know about abbott's character um do do let's see you don't have the right to believe whatever you want. This is an older, older article that I came across on the Philosophy Reddit. Um, but seemed very appropriate and relevant to our current state of affairs. It's from 2018. On the Aeon. Aeon? Aeon.co. A-E-O-N dot C-O. Written by Daniel DeNicola. Let's see, do we have the right to believe whatever we want to believe? Um, Let me, let's see, belief is not knowledge. I'm trying to get to the main thesis statement here. Um, Beliefs can be false and warranted by evidence, or reasoned consideration. They can also be morally repugnant among likely candidates, beliefs that are sexist, racist, or homophobic, the belief that proper upbringing of a child requires breaking the will and severe co- corporal punishment, the belief that the elderly should routinely be euthanized, the belief that ethnic cleansing is a political solution, and so on. If we find these morally wrong, we condemn not only The potential acts that spring from such beliefs, but the content of the belief itself, the act of believing it, and thus, the believer. Uh, This is a really great article, um, just talking about, you know, how beliefs, even if they don't manifest into action, still have detrimental effect. Um, And uh, I just really enjoyed this, this article. Um browsing browsing the article the content <laughs> do, 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 do. yeah I don't, let's see um, man, I wish my printer had worked so I could have done a little highlighting. I was gonna do a little i was gonna print out some articles and do some old school highlighting to uh find the little nuggets here that I wanted to share um but yeah it's just a very relevant article um about the about belief and the effects that it has and um you know feels similar to me to the like uh the tolerance paradox which is that tolerance requires a certain amount of intolerance to intolerance you can't actually have full tolerance of everything because certain things, um, if tolerated, are bad and harmful to people. Um, feels very similar in that uh, to that. Um, speaking freely has never been easier. This is a yeah. This is just another good little article where. Um, just about how uh free speech is not under attack. Because that's a whole bullshit thing that you hear all the time. Um And oh we got all right, last one I got here. Um in court case, Giuliani shed new light on the big lies origins. Rudy Giuliani confirmed under oath that when he peddled election conspiracy theories, he didn't check to learn whether they were true. Surprise, surprise, Rudy Giuliani is full of shit. You know, it's about time that that guy got taken down to peg. He was fucking riding on the coattails of 9-11 for way too long. It's not like he even fucking did anything. He was just the mayor when it happened. Who gives a good goddamn? Certainly not me. Jesus Christ. Good riddance, Giuliani, you crazy old fuck. I'll drink to that. All right, let's see here. I'm gonna play some more music, and then we'll see what we see. You're listening to "I'm Not Yelling" with Kyle Wall live on Entropy FM. Uh, it's crazy how. A lot of those old tunes from the 60s and 70s still are very relevant today in today's struggles. A little addendum, a little addition to uh, the drug talk at the top of the show. Um, You know, we didn't even get into the whole like conspiracy of like fucking Rockefeller and the whole pharmaceutical industry, which also. Uh, motivates for the continued um, illegalization of uh, all non uh, petroleum based pharmaceuticals and uh, how that um, accounted for a big shift in medicine away from more natural remedies to the world we have today of pills. And uh, addictive, even more addictive substances, like the opioids. That's a whole other can of worms I'll get into definitely at a future date. Um, And that's all the time we have, folks. Um, Thank you again for being with me this week and joining me on this experiment and listening to me hammer on about the things that I care about. I hope it was informative. I hope it was eye-opening. I hope it was entertaining. And, um, if you like this, I got a couple other shows that I do. The Wall Brothers Power Hour, also here on Entropy FM, Mondays at 5 to 7 p.m. Central Time. It's me and my brother, uh, shooting the shit, goofing around, and playing some fun tunes. And we also have a podcast where we review, watch and review episodes of King of Queens, called The Kings of King of Queens, which you can find on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can find links to all this stuff and more at KyleWall.biz. You also find my blog and uh, links to that. I'm trying to use my blog a little more. There's if you go to my space, hey blog blog.spacehey.com/slash/kylewall. You can find the link on my website too. Um, I've got a little post about there. Thoughts on forgiveness. Um, hoping to use that blog as another little outlet for my thoughts. Um. And. Yeah, that's it. This has been I'm Not Yelling. I've been Kyle Wall. Thanks for listening. Thank you to Hot Mom again for letting me use this track as my theme music. White by Hot Mom from their EP Blue, White, Pink All Over. Um, and we'll see you next week here live on EntropyFM.com. Thursdays at midnight Central Time. And check And on the podcast. And, um, you know, fight the system. Fight the power. Take care of yourself and each other. See you next week.